Chapter 13 of Tattlings of a Retired Politician. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bill. Instagram social number Billiam113. Tattlings of a Retired Politician by Forrest Chrissy. Chapter 13 the glad hand brigade in which william bradley tells a pointed story of the poker table and cautions ned against the conclusion that there is a bass under every lily pad or friendly vote behind every glad hand chapter thirteen the glad hand brigade broken straw ranch nineteen something dear ned it's mighty good of you to come straight out and say that whenever we've had a friendly difference you found finally that i was in the right of it that reminds me of an episode that occurred when i was in the senate in a little joint session of select members representing both houses a dispute arose the ma youngest man of the bunch who was being tried out by the old hands was hot about this point of the contention and was patting up a spirited argument when it came senator bill who had been raised in a mississippi river tavern and learned poker from the great masters in on the old steamboats look here suggested one of the players billy knows more about poker than any of us will ever learn if we sacrifice our salary and the perquisites on the altar of the kitty i move that we leave it to billy all right said the new man turning to the referee i contend senator that the ante man has the right to raise the pot before the draw am i right sir the chair decides that you are right was Billy's prompt answer, and the game proceeded. But every few minutes, the new man, who had been sustained by the referee, would pound the table and declare, Didn't I tell you I was right? And after a while, he began to contend for other points with the argument. There you again. Same old thing. Can't you see I'm right? Didn't the senator say I was right? There was more and more of this sort of thing, until it grew monotonous. Finally, the senator, who had stood it as long as he could, broke out and exclaimed, Look here, young man, don't get into your head that just because you've been right once, you're entitled to get noses and be a d -d -d fool for the remainder of your life. Now, Ned, because you are big and broad enough to declare me in the right, I am not going to keep on pounding the table forever and claiming that I can't be wrong in any position. I can't help remarking that there are a lot of men in politics who, because they have been happened to be right once or twice, feel that they are entitled to act like fools for the remainder of their lives. This is just one point on which I must put all the emphasis of a sad experience, starting with the board of supervisors and trailing along through the city council, the legislature the lower house of congress the governor's chair and the united states senate put not your trust in the glad hand brigade
and especially in that contingent of it that has to have its palms crossed with silver before the charm will work. The candidate for office who counts his strength by the number of glad hands he gets in that campaign is a good deal like the angler who figures out the catch of the black base he's going to make by the number of lily pads in sight. And sometimes it takes a long while for men of a trusting and a buoyant temperament to learn that there isn't an available black bass under every lily pad or a friendly vote behind every glad hand. According to my classifications, the glad hand brigade is cut up into traitors, trimmers, drifters, and stayers. You must have the stayers to draw in the drifters and the trimmers. The traitors you could get along with. But never do. The drifters and the trimmers are fair weather or falls. And if you're caught in a storm, look out for a scattering. When anybody brings up the subject of uh, the Glad Hand Brigade, I always recall what General Logan said to me one time when we happened to meet in New York. He was on his way to Washington to take his seat in the Senate to which he had been just elected by a fierce fight in a deadlock lasting about six months. He brushed back his splendid black hair, and in his quick way, he said, Yes, Bill, I'm going back. There will be a brass band and a lot of job holders waiting with the glad hands at the station to meet me. But somehow it won't go to the stop as it used to. You may have forgotten it, Bill, but I was once the Republican candidate for vice presidency. Right of the convention the, that nominated Mr. Brain and myself, I went back to Washington, as I had been in the habit of uh, doing, quietly sending away to my private secretary on what train I should arrive. That's all I thought about the matter, until I got into the station and heard the bands begin to play some unprophetic airs of the conquering hero stripe. Several thousand department clerks gave me the glad hand until my arm ached, and then I was escorted to slow music back to the hotel. Somehow, Bill, that made me foolish old heart feel kind of good. Just then thought that every one of those fellows had an axe to grind did come to me, but I cast my own cynicism and said, Yes, but they're American citizens. They're my kind of folk. And I've no right to think their gladness isn't genuine. This was the way in which I reasoned with myself as I was being driven in the carriage of honor. Well, continued Senator Logan, after the presidential campaign was over and Mr. Cleveland and Mr. Hendricks had begun making history, I found it necessary to go back to Washington again and clean things up, ready for retirement. As usual, I wired my private secretary to meet me at a certain train. Somehow, as I stood on the station platform, searching in vain for my secretary, I couldn't help thinking how different the landscape looked from what it did last time. I'd stepped off the train and heard the yells of hundreds. Of course, all that may be naturally accounted for. No doubt the boys were considerably depressed at the prospect of losing their scalps, and perhaps they thought the brass bands 
might jar my nerves after the protracted excitement of the campaign, but if there had been just a few, say, two or three boys of the boys who were close to me there to meet me at the station, the future wouldn't have seemed half so dark or so selfish of the race, so doubtful. When your private secretary forgets your train at which he is to meet you, make up your mind that political and public sentiment on the score of your usefulness and general consequences touched the freezing point. But now that I am again in the position to stretch backs and endorse applications, you will see that my ride from the station will not be as lonesome as it was last time. I will be met by a brass band and a thousand clerks. That night I had a telegram from Logan which read, Two bands with five thousand clerks in line, secretary on board before wheels stop moving. However, Ned, it doesn't get to do to get so sour and persuade yourself that there's no bomb in Gilead and no such thing as disinterested loyalty in the world of glad hands. When I was a boy, our folks used to put me through an annual week of prayer revival sessions, and it always resulted in giving me the feeling that everything was going to be bewowed anyhow. And that man was the only mistake the Almighty had ever made. I used to grow thin and peaked under the pressure of the sort of religious pessimism until my father said, Now, son, just laugh a little bit. Don't turn your liver over. It's a good thing to say and face the serious side of life. But when you've gone around for a month with a book of Ecclesiastes written on your face and the feeling of your heart that everybody ought to be damned right away, then you better remind your mother and Aunt Jane of a few other good folks and cheer up. So it is on the question of the Glad Hand Brigade. I always feel like tempering my general attitude with the remembrance of a few good folks. There was little Jimmy Sands, for instance. You knew him. He rode my district over the first time I ran for Congress, when I tried to hand him something for his actual expenses, and he looked really hard and said he wasn't doing things on that basis. Of course, the thought did come to me. That man will strike me heavy for some good job that will be hard to give them money. But in the scramble for a, of a hot complaint for a big place, a new one, a man grabs at every straw that comes his way without stopping to look at this price mark. So I not only accepted Jim's pr price mark, but rooted him out at any time of the night that the good cause was demanded. But that wasn't all. I mortgaged every postmastership of the district and every other strap of patronage that by any possibility could come my way. If some of my promises had overlapped as little as I told the boys that it was my first fling at the game, that in the excitement at of the moment i must have dealt the same card twice but anyhow i calculated i'd make some good some way in the general settlement and i did but by the time i'd worked the puzzle out i'd added ten years to my edge and used up every scrap by hunting the executive's office in the departments until they became to call me the importunate widow however i landed all who could prove that i had made them any sort of promise but there wasn't even an empty honor for steadfast 
Jimmy Sands. I tried to make myself think that perhaps he didn't want anything, that if he had, he would have asked for us. There wasn't any harder job in connection with that first congressional campaign than dreading to have it out with Jimmy. And at last, however, I faced the music, called him and explained that I had been trying to cover a six-foot bed of promises with a five-foot patrol coat of officers. And Jimmy looked a little solemn and admitted that if he had been offered something else that that wasn't above his grade in education, he wouldn't have refused it. But, he added, I didn't ask for anything, Bill. That was all right until I came to hustle for re-election. Of course, I wanted to return worse, if anything, than I wanted to go in the first place. I had important work to finish, as the local paper said. In other words, I felt a failure to go back would mean disgrace. Consequently, I needed the hands of every stanch friend like Jimmy Sands for more than ever. Lots of lads' hands had given me just just as good assurance that they were all right and satisfied as had Jimmy and then had gone over to the opposition. But when I made him my appeal to him, he turned up at the headquarters. You remember, Jimmy, I said how it was last time that you were left out in the cold. But, he said, I didn't ask for anything. My fault, wasn't it? Then I waited for him to come forward and to proposal which he would have made and should have made this time. He said nothing, however, simply took off his coat. All through that campaign, I said to the boys in the organization, there's just one office that I'm going to keep to play with. It is a matter of sentiment, and if I can't win without mortgaging that, I'll lose. But I won and waited to see how long it would take for Jimmy Sands to come forward and ask for the reward of an unobtrusive stay-off. He didn't, however, and even after some of the best apartments in the district had been given out. Then I landed his appointment to a place that paid him ten times what he had been earning and made him a king among his followers. Jimmy Sands would have cut his hand off without wincing, I imagine. But he bowed good when I broke news to him at his own home, and how his little wife did hug him. But you really don't get the full force of the land hand habit until you get into the Senate. When I made the race, there was only one politician, with a weasel face and a neck about half the length of, of his arm, who was a trimmer away from backwards. But he had some influence. He'd sneak around and meet me on the slime, protesting that he was for me heart and soul. But you couldn't drag him into my headquarters. He played safety from finish to start, but I worried all along and landed without his help. If I hadn't taken any more than taking the oath of office and warmed my seat in the Senate when his card was sent to me. Senator! He said, blinking his bright little eyes and dipping his long neck. I've come to ask you for the postmastership in my city. And your endorsement? I asked. I don't think you need any other proof of my loyalty than this, he replied, taking from his pocket a carbon copy of the message of uh, congratulations he had sent me four hours after my election. Uh, that office said I, is worth 10,000 a year, and there are just 29 applicants for it. 
Every one of them camped in my headquarters and set up nights for me. They weren't afraid to be caught wearing my campaign bottom. Now I have a file just 589 telegrams of congratulations sent by people who were actually on my side before the final ballot. The man who gets the job that you're after is the one who's after your political scalp, and he's going to get it. If I can help him, for he's a, not a coward or a trimmer. He doesn't keep carbons of his congratulatory telegrams. Above all that, Ned, set it down in red letters that the man who comes to you and asks money for his time has an influence enough to make his time worth anything. The only thing he's good for is to tell the rest of the honeybees where your bank account is. I've lined too many bee trees not to know how the plan works. Just put out some sweets on a shingle, and in a minute, a few, a few bees will light. Right away, every one of them will return with mates. That's the way bee trees are located, and the only thing that the grafting politician has in common with a worker bee is the habit of bringing others back with him to fill up. Turn down all the fellows who come to you straight for money. They're dear at any price. Yours ever, William Bradley. End of chapter 13. Recording by Bill. Instagram social number, William113.